Welcome to Ingest. My name is Charlie Andrews, your host. I'm a GP with an extended role in gastroenterology based near Bath. Over the last 12 months, we've had some fantastic speakers on the show. And in this episode, I'm going to do something slightly different from usual. I'm going to be giving you little snippets from each of the episodes that we've had over the last year, just highlighting some of the key learning points that I've taken um, from each of the episodes. So we're going to be looking at uh, topics from liver function tests to inflammatory bowel disease, flare management, fit testing. We'll be ranging back over all the episodes we've had this year, pulling out some of the key learning points that have made me think about my clinical practice and hopefully will also help you to think about what you're doing in clinical practice and give you some useful learning points to take away. We're going to start with the first episode of the year, which was regarding abnormal liver function tests, where I had Helen Jarvis talking to me about how to approach abnormal liver function tests. Yeah, so I mean, I guess when, when we're doing abnormal liver blood tests, there's a sort of broad categorization so you might be looking for a more hepatitic pattern or a more cholestatic pattern as the two broad categories or an isolated high bilirubin I guess is the third one that sneaks in there quite commonly so that's quite an easy one sort of isolated high bilirubin most likely to be Gilbert's or Gilbert's or however you want to pronounce it and uh, and really if, if everything else is normal um, then that can be confirmed by looking at the kind of conjugated versus unconjugated fractions and making sure that's what it is and then that can be kind of forgotten about when you're thinking about the more broad categories of kind of hepatitic and cholestatic I guess again you're thinking about what what the underlying causes will be and there's some overlap between those categories so drugs for example or or hepatocellular carcinoma or cancer might cause a kind of a combination or an autoimmune condition might cause a combination of some of those hepatitic and cholestatic patterns but for the sort of commonest causes of liver disease which are obviously the uh, alcohol-related liver disease and non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, the most common abnormalities you will see will be kind of minor abnormalities in a kind of hepatitic type of pattern, I guess. Um, so going back to the sort of cholestatic pattern, if you see a cholestatic pattern and that's confirmed, so a high ALK-FOS um, and gamma-GT, then you know, unless that's in incredibly mild and transient, then you'd probably want to be getting some sort of imaging of the of the biliary tree and, and, and liver, i.e. an ultrasound to look for the sort of common causes in terms of cholelithiasis or problems with the bile ducts, etc. And rule out the nasty causes in terms of blockages and masses and things in the bile ducts. Um, whereas much more commonly, if you're seeing that hepatitic pattern, then that indicates a sort of well, it doesn't really indicate anything about the function of the liver. It's just telling you that there's high levels of those hepatitic enzymes, which mean there's been more cell turnover or cell death in the liver. And that could have either been a trans for a transient reason or for a kind of more chronic reason. Um, so, yeah, I guess seeing those abnormalities in those two broad categories is helpful in the first first instance. It's so helpful to have a structure and a structured approach to that patient with the abnormal liver function test. And I think that Helen there really covers the broad pictures that we might well see. Helen then talks quite a lot about non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, very understandably, because as she tells us, the global prevalence is somewhere in the region of 20 to 40%. So huge numbers of patients with non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, this metabolic condition. 
In this next extract, I ask Helen what her thoughts are on liver ultrasound, because it feels like we do this for anyone with a slightly abnormal or persistently abnormal um, liver function test. So for example, a slightly raised ALT will lead to a non-invasive liver screen and an ultrasound. So I ask Helen just to give her thoughts on the role of ultrasound and whether we should be doing it on every patient with very slightly abnormal liver function tests. So these are her thoughts. So yeah, again, and this is this is this is an area where there's been quite a lot of debate recently, and I think the guidelines are probably going to change on this, or there's going to there already are moves to sort of say not everyone with abnormal liver blood tests, which are mild and in the context of likely fatty liver disease, needs to have an ultrasound because what how is that going to change your management? You know, most of them will show up as having fat on the on the ultrasound. And there's been some studies which have shown that they don't really show anything else on the ultrasound. So we're not missing lots of cancers or, or, or other other causes of liver disease if we don't do ultrasounds on people with mildly raised ALT. Um, so it's just a sort of way of coding or ticking a box for fatty liver disease. But we could probably just code or tick that box based on the fact that they have lots of other metabolic risk factors and a mildly raised ALT. That should be enough information to say they've probably got non-alcoholic fatty liver disease or fatty liver caused by the metabolic syndrome. So at the moment, in a lot of the regional guidelines, as part of that first line kind of liver screen as such, a liver ultrasound is in there. But as we know in general practice, if we did liver ultrasounds on every single person with an ALT of 42 or 45, we'd be kind of overwhelming the system. So my, my personal practice within that is that if they've got a cholestatic picture or there's any diagnostic doubt as to the cause of those liver blood tests, then part of that diagnostic workup would often include an ultrasound, probably prior to seeking some advice from secondary care as to what the diagnosis might be. But if, you, if you're pretty sure what the diagnosis is um, and they've only got mild abnormality in the ALT is the only liver blood test that's abnormal, then I don't necessarily do an ultrasound scan before I start doing those other tests to look for, um, you know, whether they might have a likelihood of liver fibrosis. So before doing those FIB4 scores or NAFL fibrosis scores or whatever way you're going to use to triage out all of the likely kind of benign steer patients from those who may be at slightly higher risk of having progressed to fibrotic liver disease. So some really helpful thoughts and advice there from Helen Jarvis certainly has helped to make me think about my own practice in this very common scenario where we have slightly abnormal liver function tests and we're trying to work out where to go next with it. So a really helpful episode from Helen. Our second episode of the year was with Dr Kevin Monaghan who was the lead author for the BSG and the ACPGBI uh, guidance around using fit testing to guide colorectal cancer referral in primary care. This was a really interesting episode, very topical. Um, and in this extract, Dr. Kevin Monaghan just gives an overall ethos around why we use fit testing in this scenario. Fit is it's a test for colorectal cancer. That's that's what it is. Um, it's uh, it's 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 a way of stratifying risk. Um, it's not a diagnostic test, but when you stratify risk, even in the context of PRP bleeding or iron deficiency anemia, um, if you have a fit below the threshold, then your likelihood of having colorectal cancer is incredibly low. Um, now, whatever symptom you have, whether it be PRP bleeding or um, you know diarrhea, 
some of them may well require referral and investigation. Um, you know, they may require an endoscopy. Um, you know, obviously there are things, the investigations that can, that can be performed that don't require referral that GPs do all the time, celiac serology and full blood counts and iron and whatnot. Um, and I, I think that the, the ones who don't necessarily need to be referred on, on the urgent pathway, they're a somewhat heterogeneous population, but they're a heterogeneous population in whom the risk of cancer is really low when we're thinking about other causes for the symptoms. So as Dr. Monaghan says, fit is a test for bowel cancer. It's not there to identify other conditions that obviously we want to try to identify. And we need to be making sure that we use our pathways appropriately so that those who do have elevated fit tests manage to get through on those two-week wait pathways. Whereas those who don't have a raised fit test but may have other conditions that agree might well need further investigation, such as possibly uh, inflammatory bowel disease, celiac disease, etc., they can go through a very appropriate pathway, but it allows that two-week wait pathway to be used for what it needs to be used for, which is identifying cancer early, because we know that that will have an impact on survival. In this next extract, I asked Dr. Monaghan about the ages at which we can use uh, FIT testing, and he tells us a little bit about that now. So yeah, FIT can be used in anyone, any adult, um, from the age of 18 onwards, um, at the same threshold. Um, and there are some people who argue that you could use a slightly higher threshold because this is a lower prevalence population with lower rates of colorectal cancer. Um, but when we when we produced the guideline, we wanted to produce something that was very simple and fairly robust and, and having different thresholds for different populations is something that we wanted to avoid. So some helpful advice there from Kevin Monaghan, just clarifying kind of the role of, uh, of fit testing in our pathways and just thinking about when, when we can be using it. So what age groups we can use it in. So he goes into this in, in a lot more detail during the episode. So if you want to understand more about fit testing, I would absolutely recommend that you have a listen to that episode. This uh, episode with Kevin Monaghan was recorded before the NICE guidance was updated and published in October of 2023. So it um, presents a lot of the information that then became um, sort of presented within the NICE pathways and the NICE guidance uh, later on in the year. But really useful information from Kevin Monaghan. So have a listen if you want to learn a bit more. Our next speaker on the show is Dr. Kevin Barrett talking about uh, inflammatory bowel disease flare management. We talked about this really important topic, how it's actually quite common for patients with IBD, so ulcerative colitis, Crohn's disease, to experience flare symptoms. We talked about some of the things that might point towards an organic cause of symptoms as opposed to a functional cause such as IBS. And things like nocturnal defecation, um, we discussed early on in the podcast. So going to the toilet at night, very uncommon in functional disease, more common in organic or inflammatory bowel disease, for example. In this extract, Kevin is talking about how it can be really challenging to tell whether a patient is having a flare of their inflammatory bowel disease. And he also discusses the concept of um, overlap between functional symptoms and inflammatory symptoms. So, so again, a lot of patients, probably again, 50%-ish, that kind of figure with IBD inflammatory bowel disease also have, an, have a, a functional IBS type pattern with their symptoms as well, um, where they still get, um, the, they might get dietary intolerances. Um, some patients can't tolerate fiber, um, dairy products, gluten, those, those sorts of foods, including the, the high FODMAP foods. Um, and um, so, so again, 
the, the bloating and discomfort and you know, increased bowel frequency, for example, although some people do get constipation with it, um, that absolutely ca can happen. And they can mimic an overlap and be almost identical to the, to the inflammatory symptoms that you get. Patients with, with disease at the, the far end of the gut, so the, the sort of the, the left-sided disease and rectal disease, um, and ulcerative colitis, for example, they, they're much more likely to get blood in their stools, for example, much more blood and mucus perhaps than patients with um, more of a small bowel or, or generalised bowel thing that you might see in, um, in Crohn's disease, for example. Um, patients with very upper bowel disease, so the stomach and esophageal disease, that that's that can be very very difficult to um to, to differentiate. But the patients with with, with um generalised lower GI disease, uh, it, it can be absolutely tricky. Um, and you might get people who actually get both at the same time. They have a, an inflammatory flare, um, and then that exacerbates their functional symptoms as well. So it's it's a real minefield, and it's really difficult in some patients. Some it's really obvious. They just say, actually, this doesn't feel like an inflammatory flare to me because they've lived the disease. They know what's going on with it. Um, whereas others are quite new or, or something changes, it's difficult. Every patient's dif different in this situation. And that's, that's the key with this. There's no, you can't easily pigeonhole patients and put them into a, uh, in one particular, one particular pattern. So I think as we all know, it can be really difficult to differentiate between functional symptoms and organic symptoms. So, um, you know, differentiating between irritable bowel syndrome and inflammatory bowel disease, but so important that we do so, so that we treat things in the right way. Later on in the series, we had Dr. James Turville talking to us about faecal calprotectin, and it feels right to bring that episode in at this point, because in this next extract, Dr. Turville talks to us about how best to use faecal calprotectin to differentiate between irritable bowel syndrome and inflammatory bowel disease. Calprotectin should be primarily used to, to, to support your assessment of a patient, your risk assessment of a patient who presents with symptoms that might be inflammatory bowel disease or might be an irritable bowel syndrome. And you see a lot of these patients, bowel digestive symptoms, very commonplace in primary care. You know that better than me. And untangling that patient is what you use the calprotectin for. So as Dr. Turville says, we can use faecal calprotectin to try to tease apart those patients with functional versus organic pathology here. So differentiating between irritable bowel syndrome and inflammatory bowel disease. But what do we need to think about in terms of medications? Do we need to stop people's medications before we test for faecal calprotectin? And in particular, things like PPIs, do we need to stop them? A range of medicines, anything that causes inflammation and migration of neutrophils into the gut mucosa will put up the, the, the fecal calprotectin. There's interest in PPIs. An excellent colleague of mine in the southeast published some data on PPIs a few years ago, and I think this has caused some confusion. What he found was that people who were symptomatic with inflammatory foregut disease and so taking PPIs had an elevated fecal calprotectin. And this, this makes sense. If you've got a peptic ulcer, it may well raise your fecal calprotectin. But it wasn't the PPI per se putting up 
the, the, the fecal calprotectin. It was the, the use of that because of foregut inflammatory processes that were driving neutrophils into the gut mucosa. From my point of view, in the way our pathway is applied, the PPI has no bearing on anything. And I, I would, it's just, it's another hurdle for you and the patient, you and primary care and the patient have to overcome before uh, an assessment. So I would not worry about that at all. So some really useful advice there around how to use fecal calprotectin in practice, certainly things that I've taken away from that episode with James Turville um, and has changed or adapted some of my practice. We're now going to move back to Dr. Kevin Barrett's um, talk about managing inflammatory bowel disease flares. And we're going to hear from him about how to best use corticosteroids or prednisolone in managing flares of ulcerative colitis. A really important topic and one where we need to be getting this right because these medications can have side effects. Um, they can have uh, present risk to patients such as diabetes and osteoporosis. So we need to know how to use them appropriately. If they don't respond, if they come back, um, then again, the steroids that, you know, we can prescribe them in, um, in primary care. But again, we need to go for a decent dose. And the general dose that's used by most IBD teams is, is to go for go for 40 milligrams or 30 milligrams start off at a decent level um, but then to come down reasonably quickly so typically reduced by five milligrams per um, per week um, over that six to eight weeks depending on the starting dose. So some really helpful nuggets of information there from um, both Kevin Barrett and James Turville about fecal calprotectin and flare management. In the next episode of Ingest, I talk to Marianne Williams, a specialist dietitian based in Somerset, who has been instrumental in setting up an IBS pathway uh, within her area. We talk about um, dietary advice and the low FODMAPs diet in this episode. And I think that this, this extract that I'm going to play for you really just encompasses the importance of going back to basics with patients. I think before anybody looks at trying to use complex dietary intervention, it's, as you said, really important, Charlie, to look at the first line advice for IBS, because it may not actually be necessary to use any complex diets. I mean, the diet that's used most commonly for IBS is the low FODMAP diet. Now, that needs quite a lot of motivation to do it, and it just might not be necessary. So it should never be the first line approach. So if you get a patient who's sent you with IBS as a diagnosis, or you diagnose them with IBS, I would definitely not direct them straight to the low FODMAP diet, because it could be really simple things that need changing. So, you know, are they having a lot of junk food? Do they drink a lot of fizzy drinks? Are they eating a lot of spicy food? Have they got a lot of stress in their in their world? And are they, you know, simple things like sitting down and eating without a digital appliance at the table. So you're actually sitting, relaxing, enjoying your food, digesting. It sounds really old school advice, doesn't it? But it does make a difference. Being present in the moment while you're eating, simple things like that can make a huge difference. I love this next extract from the episode I recorded with Marianne. She has a really inimitable style in describing conditions and describing symptoms and management plans to patients. And I think that this really encompasses 
the importance of how we communicate with patients so that they understand what is going on, what their symptoms are, and how, for example, dietary modification can help their symptoms. The FODMAP diet stands for fermentable oligosaccharides, disaccharides, monosaccharides and polyols. It sounds like a very long string of, you know, annoyingly long words. Basically, to cut to the chase, it's foods that ferment in the gut or cause water to be dragged into the bowel. Simple as that. So it's osmotic changes in the small intestine. So things like prunes prunes get used for people with constipation don't they they get given prunes to eat in their breakfast or prune juice etc now the reason those are good for constipation is if you've got a hard a hard little stool and you take prunes and those go down to the small intestine because it's a fodmap they drag water into the bowel and mix with the hard stools and make the stool soft bob's your uncle you haven't got so much constipation anymore so that's a fodmap approach but the other thing is Baked beans, everybody eats baked beans, farts, beans means farts. That's because they get down to the lower intestine, the large intestine, where they ferment. The bacteria in the large intestine ferment the residue of the baked beans, and so you get wind. Now, there are lots of fruit and veg and wheat, etc., that cause that exact same fermentation that baked beans cause. So there are some foods that cause the water to be dragged in, and there are a lot of foods that cause the wind. And if you get the wind, you're going to get the bloating. If you get the bloating, you're going to get that visceral hypersensitivity. Uh, you're going to get abdominal pain or discomfort. So there you've got your IBS symptoms. So it's what I call plumbing. Um, it's really your body plumbing. So the FODMAP diet is dealing with the plumbing issues. Nothing to do with the immune system or allergy or, you know, nothing complex. Literally just plumbing. People think of prunes and baked beans. That's the FODMAP diet, really. So what you're doing with the FODMAP diet with patients is you are removing all of those foods that have that effect for eight weeks so that you can reduce the symptoms and see where you're at. Now, I always describe it to the patient as a bit like having a jug. You've got this jug and what's happening is you're adding to this jug all the time with the FODMAP food you're eating. And then you might eat just too many and the jug overflows, and that's when you get your symptoms. Because the classic thing I get a lot of patients saying to me is, I had this food last week, and I was absolutely fine. And I had it this week, and I had the most dreadful symptoms. And I say, yeah, because that time you had the dreadful symptoms, you'd probably had a lot of FODMAPs, your jug was very full, and that same piece of food was the bit of food that pushed the jug over the top. So that's another reason why people find it so confusing because they're looking for the same symptoms every single time they have it. And of course, that's not going to happen with something which is all about how much can I get away with? Not the tiniest bit like an allergy is going to cause problems. This is how much can I get away with before I'll get symptoms? So that's how I describe it to patients. And I think it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's just about reducing everything down in that jug, getting the jug empty, looking at where you're at, and then starting to put the foods back in one by one to see which foods are particularly problematic and whether actually it's only when you just overload the whole lot that the problem occurs. It's always great to have allied health professionals on the podcast giving their take on how to approach some of these really complex issues. So just communicating something quite complex with the patient, breaking it down in the way that Marianne does, so helpful. Marianne shares lots and lots of really useful information in her episode talking about things like lactose intolerance and irritable bowel syndrome so 
if you want to know more about that, I really would recommend that you go back and have a listen to her full episode. Uh, really interesting and entertaining um, episode from Marianne there. In our penultimate episode of the year, I talked to Professor Julian Walters about bile acid diarrhea. We discussed what bile acid diarrhea is, and we also discussed how common it is. And I'm going to hand over to Professor Walters to talk to you about that now. I think it's really interesting to think about how common it is in patients with IBSD, which is what we refer to here, which is IBS with diarrhea-predominant symptoms. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, I think you need to think about it in most patients, certainly the, the, those, those severe patients who have IBSD, um, and about a, a third of those can be tested, can, can be shown on tests to have uh, bile acid diarrhea. Mm, that's a large proportion, isn't it? Yes, it is. If you work out the figures, um, about 10% of the general population have I IBS, about a third of those have I IBSD, and so if a third of those actually have primary bile acid diarrhea, then about 1% of the general population, so one in 100 people walk walking around will have uh, primary bile acid diarrhea. So a very common condition, far more common than I had previously thought it was. So really important for us to, to have our antenna picking out those patients with IBS diarrhea predominant symptoms who just aren't responding very well, where we should really be thinking about a diagnosis of bile acid diarrhea. In this next extract, Professor Walters talks to us about managing bile acid diarrhea, and in particular, how we should best use bile acid sequestrant medications to manage these patients. I think it's really interesting here just to think about the timing of the dosing. So I'll leave it to Professor Walters to tell you more. So my, my starting dose would be a single four gram sachet of cholestyramine, but I would give it last thing at night. Now, the packaging suggests that you should take it with meals because cholestyramine was originally produced to bind bile acids, which would then drive the conversion of cholesterol to bile acids and so would lower cholesterol within the blood. And so you want, want it to bind the bile acids quickly and easily in order to promote the cholesterol conversion. What we want to do is we want to get the bile acid sequestrant into the colon to bind the leftover bile acids. So you really don't need to bind the, those in the duodenum because the bulk of them will be absorbed. If there's overproduction, you just want to be able to reduce the amount of free bile acids within the colon. So patients report that, and uh, this is a fairly consistent finding, that it works better taken on an empty stomach but last thing at night. In our final episode of the year, I spoke to Dr. Andrew Moore about Barrett's esophagus. Barrett's esophagus is a condition that perhaps in primary care we don't consider or come across quite so often, but in secondary care it's encountered commonly um, and a lot of the management is held within secondary care. But it's really important that we understand what Barrett's esophagus is and Dr. Moore talks in detail about this with us. This first extract that I'm going to present to you is just talking about the cancer risk associated with Barrett's esophagus. Barrett's esophagus is a precancerous condition, an important precursor for esophageal 
adenocarcinoma. And so Dr. Moore talks about the risk of progression to adenocarcinoma in those with Barrett's esophagus here. Even in people with Barrett's esophagus, cancer is relatively uncommon. So uh, around about a half a percent of people with Barrett's esophagus will go on to develop either high-grade dysplasia or cancer per year. Um, and the estimate roughly is that about sort of 10% of people with Barrett's will develop cancer in their lifetime. So an important condition for us to be picking up in primary care so we can reduce the risk of esophageal adenocarcinoma. And I did ask Dr. Moore about which patients should we be considering um, an endoscopy in to try to identify this condition. And he gives his thoughts here. We recommend that you can screen for patients, uh, screen for Barrett's esophagus in patients with a history of chronic reflux and or three or more of the risk factors. So white race over the age of 50, abdominal obesity or a family history. And it's fairly common practice to offer a one-off screening endoscopy to people who've got a history of reflux for more than about 10 years. Um, although that's not a sort of widespread, as you know, not, not, a, not a population-based screening program as such. So Barrett's esophagus, clearly a condition that we want to identify. And Dr. Moore's given us some ideas there about which patients which should we be targeting our endoscopies on so that patient with the persistent reflux and some of those risk factors that he's just talked about there. We talk a lot more about Barrett's esophagus during the episode. We talk a bit about the, the treatments that are available in secondary care, but also the medications that we should be giving in primary care and how we should be reducing the risk of progression to cancer in this group of patients. So there we have it, a roundup of Ingest 2023 where I've tried to pick out some really useful learning points for you from the episodes that we've had over the last 12 months. Full episodes can be found wherever you access your podcast, so whether that be iTunes, Spotify, or the Primary Care Society for Gastroenterology website. Please do follow the podcast, and then you'll get updates wherever we bring out a new episode. Finally, I'd like to say some thank yous. So I want to say a huge thank you to our speakers over the last 12 months, without whom we wouldn't be able to bring you this really useful learning resource. So I want to say a huge thank you to Helen Jarvis, Kevin Monaghan, Kevin Barrett, Marianne Williams, James Turville, Julian Walters, and Andrew Moore. I also want to say a big thank you to the PCSG or Primary Care Society for Gastroenterology team who have helped to produce and promote Ingest over the last year. In fact, over the last two years, we are now approaching our third year uh, of running the podcast. So a huge thank you to them, all their efforts in getting this podcast out to you. And finally, I want to say a big thank you to you, the listener, for joining me. If you've listened to the episodes over the last year, thank you so much for joining me and learning with me and listening to um, some of the fantastic speakers that we brought in. If you're new to Ingest, welcome. I really hope that you go back and have a listen to some of the brilliant episodes that we've had over the last year. And I really look forward to bringing you more learning as we move into 2024. Thank you very much. <laughs>